my name's Josh. I lead students and I preach from time to time. Uh, one thing that's nice about redemption, it's pretty simple. You show up, we're in the book of Mark. Whoever comes up here this summer will be in the book of Mark. We continue on. Um, next week, I won't be here. We're going to summer camp, so just be praying. Redemption is sending over 500 students off to Point Loma University to give them Jesus and hopefully see some lives change. So be praying this week for us as we're gone next week. Yeah, thank you very much. Be praying. And lots and lots of adult leaders, so be praying for that. We'd love it. Um, Today is a long passage, you see that. It's an interesting passage that I've been wrestling through a bunch just in terms of what do I want people to leave with? Because there's essentially three stories in there. There's, there's a whole lot of just kind of grim outlook if you're a Christian. What is it that we're after? Um, and this, thing, this question popped in my mind late last night. I was just thinking through how to introduce this. Here's, here's my initial question for you. Don't raise your hand and I don't want to start any arguments. The question is, is America a Christian nation? Some would say, absolutely. I would say, I don't know. Some would say, is America a Christian nation? I just talked to my dad and some older guys about it, and they've got very strong opinions about it being a Christian nation. Here's my, here's my follow-up. Are Christians playing on the home field. Do we have home court advantage as Christians? If you're not a sports person, let me explain. There's two teams. One's the home team, one's the visitor team. Home team gets to play on their field with their people, with their fans, and their, it's, it's their place. Are Christians here with home field advantage, or are we the visiting team? We are the visiting team we always have been. We see it in this passage. We always will be. There's this crazy little blip in the middle of history called Christendom where Christianity kind of rose to the top of Western society and Christianity for a season seemed to become the home field advantage for people and now that seems to be dissipating and going away. We are the visiting team. Now just to have some fun on the front end, I, I kind of want to Google. What are the worst places sports-wise to go play if you're the visiting team? So I know we have some fans in here of some various sports teams. I hope to offend a lot of you. Here's the worst place to play. Look at that horrible place. That is Century Link Field in Seattle. It is where Satan dwells. It is the loudest stadium in the NFL. People constantly think Seattle is piping in noise through their sound system. It is so loud. It is the worst place to go if you're an opposing team. Don't go there. Citizens Park in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Their fans are horrible. Picture all your insecurities you have about yourself. And then picture walking into a stadium with 60,000 people with signs displaying your biggest insecurities. Hey, double chin. Hey, fatso. Hey, loser. Hey, wife left him. Hey, whatever. And that's Citizen Park. Yikes. This is Oracle Arena. This is where Golden State will play in the finals. Not many Golden State fans. That's fine. Again, we got one. I think that was Indy. Again. Loudest place to play in the NBA, horrible for other NBA teams to come in there and play. And then for you soccer fans, this is Estadio Azteca in Mexico City. It is at 8,000 feet above sea level. I think I said that correctly. Very smoggy. 
very just kind of rough to play in just from an athletic standpoint. And then the fans there love to fill bags of liquid. It's a place where you drink a lot, so imagine the types of liquid that would enter bags in a sports event. And then throw those Ziploc bags at opposing teams, fans, whatever. Ew. Horrible to go play as an opposing team. What would be worse than going to play at an opposing place like that? Here's what I've come to the conclusion of. It would be worse if you did not expect it. To go in there as a rookie, as a blind, ignorant player, to go into that and not realize what you're about to get into. That would be far worse than actually playing there because you have no idea what to expect. You show up and stuff's being thrown at you. Signs are being held up about your wife. It's ridiculous. And you're like, what have I gotten myself into? That's what this passage is about. Jesus, for the last couple of weeks, has basically been just showing that he's Superman. He's been showing off his skills, his power, his might, his lordship. And now, this is the very first time in the Gospel of Mark where the apostles, the disciples, his followers, actually go out and start doing ministry for themselves. And he's getting a little comma here, and he's going to say, this is what it's like to go play on the opposing field. Are you ready? So my my big concern, my big prayer over all this is what's the tone we want to have when coming to this, as we read it, as we leave this? What's the tone? Do we want to be patriotic and to heck with all those? Do we want to be feisty and mad and cynical and jaded? I think we want to be humbly prepared and humbly expectant. That's it. This is a humble passage. Jesus is just giving us a glimpse through the disciples' lives into what the Christian life's really like. The gospel of Mark starts like this. Repent, you'll hear this from me every time I teach, the kingdom of God is at hand. If we have a gospel where we're the first thing, the initial thing, the core thing that we're calling people to is repent, turn around, the only lifestyle that can come out of that is a lifestyle full of rejection. And that's what we see here. If we're going to bring a gospel where our big claim, our big push, our big desire, our big call is repent, turn around, we are going to face rejection, 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 rejection. Because we are calling people to reject the life they know. That's what we're after today. We don't want to leave here more American. We don't want to leave here more proud. We don't want to leave here more arrogant. We don't want to leave here more feisty. We want to leave here more like Jesus Christ. So hopefully we can do that today. This breaks down nice into three stories. Essentially, we're going to see rejection in your hometown, rejection with those people you go out to serve, and rejection by the authorities that are in power over you. We're going to see it all in this passage. So are you guys ready for this? Let's do this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Matthew just read it. He was up here for about a half an hour. 6-1. Let me read. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus is now in his hometown. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Who is this guy? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? I know that guy. Went to school with him. Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The very first thing we see in the Christian life as Jesus unpacks what it means to be a Christian, live as a Christian, is you will be rejected by those relationships closest to you. Just plain and simple. We will be rejected, I think we have a point there, by those relations closest to you. 
Whether it be your hometown, whether it be your family, whether it be the guys you grew up with, or it be your friends, whatever it is, there will be rejection from those closest to you. There will be relationships that get sticky and you have to depart from because you are no longer wanted because the thing that you bring now is a gospel of repentance. Now, a lot of people, by God's grace, grow up in a very Christian home. Hopefully my kids will grow up, love Jesus. I will not reject them. A lot of people don't have that benefit. A lot of people become Christians in a non-Christian environment and they start butting heads with their father, with their mother, with their siblings, with whoever it may be, and you may lose those relationships. That's just the fact of how this thing plays out. I, uh, I'm a pastor, obviously. I don't get to be around a lot of non-Christians unless I'm really intentional. So one of the relationships I've been intentional with is my barber. So I've kind of been bouncing around trying to find a non-Christian barber who maybe kind of lives close enough to maybe I can invite him to church. So I had this gal for a while, then I'm like, where do you live? She lives too far away. I'm like, peace out, I'm gone. Went and found another guy. He's an ex-Jehovah's Witness, and he actually lives in Power Ranch. Perfect, you're my guy. I don't care what I look like, but you're my guy. And we got to talking, and he is, has left the Jehovah's Witness church, whatever they call it. He's left it conviction-wise. He hasn't left it because if he leaves it, he will lose his kids. He will lose his spouse. He will lose everything because they will shun him. They still use that word shun. This passage means something to me as I go to him and tell him what he might be signing up for. You may be left behind by those people you love most. I have a lot of uh, Muslim friends from my teaching days. Same thing there. The only thing they've ever known is that they're Muslim. They were born Muslim, their entire family, everything about them is Muslim. If one of those folks ever gets baptized, becomes a Christian, they will be saying goodbye to basically the only life they've ever known. Jesus says, I know, I've been there. I went to Nazareth, and they took offense at me. You may lose your closest relationships. That's part of the deal. And this next part is just really interesting because I think it impacts all of us, no matter what sort of environment. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor and except, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Here's the other thing that it's going to cost you in those relationships that are closest to you. Your core new essential identity will be rejected. Think about it this way. You grew up in a setting where you went to a high school. Your high school friends know you as something. Your college friends know you as something. Your ex-boyfriends and girlfriends know you as something. Your ex-buddies you used to around know you as something. Your family knows you as something. My family is still amazed that my wife thinks I'm awesome. They always remind her. Okay. Okay, let me. Josh, this guy, I used to see him poop himself. I used to see him pick his nose all the time. Josh is not that great. I know Josh. I know the real Josh. There's lots of people out there who think they know the real you and have the true identity of who you are. Jesus was not only a prophet, he was God. And he goes to his hometown and they say, isn't that just a carpenter's son? Isn't that the son of Mary, which is kind of offensive because you're normally identified by your dad. Isn't that just Mary's boy? Isn't that just... Jesus says, you can't go in your own hometown without people changing, maligning your true identity. Now, there's not a lot of encouraging stuff coming out. It's like people are going to change. This is, again, just the reality of the Christian life. 
if you were that promiscuous kid, teenager, young adult, amongst that crowd, you may always be labeled that promiscuous person. You become a Christian and you meet Jesus, you are now pure and righteous and good and perfect in God's eyes. This identity they still think they have on you, your true identity comes in and trumps it no matter what people say. But the reality of the Christian life is everybody's got a label for you. They had labels for Jesus. They might not line up with your true label. You just got to be ready for it, especially with those closest to you, those who know you. I know the real Josh. I know the real Bill. I know the real Susan. She, I know Susan. Me and Susan, I know. I know Jenny. I know Jenny. God knows Jenny. God loves Jenny. God saved Jenny. God has purified Jenny. Who cares what a bunch of people who think they know you think about you? Amen. Your identity is secure in Christ. But when you go to where people think they know you, they're going to try to fight that. That's just the reality of the Christian life. There's no amen there. That's just a fact. Here's kind of the tension now. Well, if that's true, if I just go with my old people and my friends and my family, and they're just going to make fun of me and call me the old Josh and not really let me be my true Christian self, to heck with them. I'm out of here. I'm just going to go to other people and serve them and bring them the love of Jesus. To heck with them. And we jump into this next section where Jesus shows disciples going to other people now and the same reality meets them. You can go elsewhere to love other people, outsiders, and love them with everything you have and still face rejection. So here's the next round of rejection we're going to see here. You can be rejected by those who you serve faithfully. He said that again. You will be rejected by those you and I serve faithfully. Not just your family and your boys and girls you used to run around with, but by those you pour your life out for, you may be rejected. Let's read here, verse 7. And he called the 12. So this is the very first ministry opportunity for these guys who have just been following Jesus do his thing. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. The first thing that kind of stands out here, as you go and serve faithfully, what does it look like to serve faithfully? I think this kind of hits at kind of American Christianity. The thing I see here is it's going to cost you independence. Nothing about this little description of this is the first kind of Christian missionary expedition. This is the first time Jesus says, you guys go and do Christian work. Go be like me amongst the people. Nothing about this lines up with Christian ideals of independence. I don't need anyone. I can do it all myself. I'll accumulate what I need. I will retire with my retirement. I will do my thing. He says, you will go in pairs. You need people. This is not a solo effort. There's no solo church anywhere. There's no church of Mike Smith anywhere. That doesn't exist. Church means gathering. And then people that gather, they then get scattered in pairs. Does this prescribe exactly how we need to do ministry? Absolutely not. But it is a good essence at what Christianity should look like. We should be dependent on each other to do ministry well. To do it like Jesus wants it to be done. Some people will say, well, I come to church every week. Sit right in that row. I sit next to, what's his name again? 
I think James. Yeah, me and James, we're, we're doing this thing. Here's my question for you. What person in this church knows the people that you are passionately pursuing with the gospel? Like, who are your three people that you want to meet Jesus? And what person in this church knows that and is praying alongside with you? That's what this passage is talking about. People going together for the sake of the gospel, you lose your independence. You do this together. If you don't have a person, pray to God. Ask him to give you that. We are in this together. And I know we have spouses, and that's like an easy cop-out because we sleep in the same bed. And Who's your partner? Oh, Aubrey. But there's other ways to get partners in ministry. You serve together. You pray together. You show up early together. You do an RC together. Whatever it is, you need people. The other thing it attacks is our dependence on ourselves and our ability to have stuff, essentially. I love what Jesus tells them. Basically, take nothing. Why? Because you're going to do ministry, and every time uh, an environment's provided for you, I'm going to provide through the people you're ministering to. How American does that sound? Don't take anything. Go to Mesa. Don't bring anything. And just start ministering to people, and they'll provide for you as you minister them in the name of Jesus. Anybody signing up for that? Can I write a check for that guy? Because I, I don't want to be that guy. Now, again, I'm not saying people get really stupid and silly with the Bible and try to make it fit a culture that it was never meant to fit. But the essence of this needs to fit. Are you depending not only on people but on God to provide the opportunities for you to minister as you go out and bring this gospel? A gospel of repentance, which will provide lots of rejection. Are you depending on God? It's a question I hate. I think it's kind of corny, but it gets to the heart of the question. If God answered all your prayers, your prayer list, wherever you keep them, your Lisa Frank diary, wherever your prayers are, and God answered them tomorrow, what about this world would change? What about the poor neighborhood around you would change? What about the foster system would change? What about, what would change? This is the Christian life. It costs us our independence. We are no longer solo Americans doing our solo thing, heading towards a solo retirement where we are in control of our own destiny. We are a church, a gathering of people who are being sent out together with nothing but God's provision in bringing ministry to people. That is the Christian life. It'll cost us something, especially as Americans. It costs us our pride because we can't provide this. God needs to show up and provide. Uh, Let's keep reading here. This next part gets interesting. Verse 10. Now, in this context, you're doing ministry. You're basically just going around town to town asking God to show up before you and show up there with you. Verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Here's the heartbreaking thing. Jesus didn't just send them out with a message. He didn't send them down to a college area with a sign that says, repent ye sinner. He sent them out with the power over unclean spirits and to heal people and to cure sickness. So these people are doing wonderful things for folks. And they're living in their homes and they're eating and sharing bread and having a wonderful life together as they try to bring this gospel to people. And Jesus says, but people will still reject you. 
Places will still reject you. Whole families will still reject you. And here's what I've just come to kind of summarize this with. It is going to cost us our vulnerability. Again, not very American. We hide our emotions. We hide behind our garages, in our homes, between all of our locks. We don't get vulnerable. And these apostles were sent out with nothing but God's power and provision. And he said, you're going to pour your life into these people. You're going to heal and sick, heal the sick and cast out demons and pray for them and love them and heal little babies and be with families. And people are still going to reject you. It's going to cost us being vulnerable. Willing to give up everything for someone who may or may not ever turn to the gospel that you bring to them. Again, there's no amen there. That's just a fact. The tone we're setting is not, let's charge the gates of, it's a coach sitting in a locker room saying, here's what the opposing team is going to be like. I want you to listen. You are going to give everything to some of your kids and some of your foster kids. And they are going to reject the gospel that you've spent your entire life giving them. You're going to give everything to your neighbor you spend 40 years next to. And some of them are going to say, that's not for me. That's, that's the reality of the Christian life. You will be rejected and you will be vulnerable and you will lay it all out. You will lay yourself bare for someone else and they will say, no thanks. Just like Jesus did. Naked on the cross, bare. Forgive them, they know what they do. Spit on them. That's the Christian life. Now, I just want to make note, it says, when you leave, it says kind of this Jewish thing, shake off the dust off your feet as a sign against them. A lot of people want to take this and mean, to heck with you, screw you, I'm out of here. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Here's essentially what it was. Jewish kind of tradition was when they went to Gentile lands, pagan lands, they would shake the dust off their feet as they entered back into their homeland so they wouldn't bring Gentile, unholy, unrighteous dirt into their land. Jesus is just saying, you lay it all out there. You give it everything you have. And as a last token, just let them know this is their way back to God because they're in a Jewish land now. So they're doing this on Jewish doorsteps. Jewish folks know what they're saying. They're saying, you, if you abandon me and my message and my gospel of repentance, your chance at standing on God's ground with God in his presence is gone. Are you sure this is what you want? Yes, I'm sure. Get out of here. And you leave. This isn't an in-your-face Look at you, idiot. This is a sad last resort as you've laid everything out for people that you want to come to know Jesus. This is the Christian life. Is it worth it? I think so. Now, again, not to harp on Americans. I'm harping on Americans a lot. But in this, Americans can say, well, my family could reject me. And I could go and serve lots of places and be rejected there, but at least I'm still an American. I still got my freedoms. You know what I'm saying? Amen, America. Amen. Well, this passage speaks to that as well. Because the powers that be aren't always going to be in our favor. And the powers that are over us are not always going to be there to protect us. And the powers that give us the freedoms we now enjoy may or may not be there when we need them most. And we see a glimpse of that in the death of John the Baptist, which is just a horrible 
TMZ-worthy story of just silliness and corruption at its finest. So let's go to this next verse here, verse 14. Let's look at the third type of rejection, the authorities that are in power. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name and become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. So King Herod knows John the Baptist. He's heard of him. He's been around him. He hears about Jesus, and he's just trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? This is why these miraculous powers are working him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. What? Let me just explain. Jesus is unpacking the Christian life. I'm rejecting my hometown. You go out and love people with everything you have and you still could be rejected. And then he kind of goes to this daydreaming instance where King Herod is daydreaming about when he killed John the Baptist. And it's just another picture of persecution in the Christian life. And what we see here is King Herod's in charge. King Herod actually likes John the Baptist. He listens to John the Baptist. He's intrigued by the message of John the Baptist. King Herod happens to be married to kind of a not-so-nice woman. So he married this woman who happened to be married to his brother at the time. He said, I want this woman. So he tried to follow with me. So two people are married. King Herod's over here. I like that woman. She's cute. Let me take her. He takes her. They're now married. And she has a daughter with this guy. So now he's got his new wife, which he stole, and this stepdaughter, which he essentially stole from his own brother. Got it? Easy to follow, right? It happens all the time. Only in my family? Okay, not yours. <laughs> the wife hates John the Baptist. Because he keeps harping on this thing. Repent. 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 Repent of what? Of you know what? You adulterer. You left your husband, went with this guy. That's not right. Repent. 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 The woman hates him. Herod kind of likes him. He's intrigued. It's like the Billy Graham of the day. Like, man, this guy might be onto something. He doesn't know what to do. He's a typical guy, kind of a cowardly, doesn't really want to make any staunch decisions. So he says, oh, let me just put him in prison to protect him from my crazy wife for a bit. This is the story so far. The folks in power can reject us by taking away our freedoms whenever they choose. We live in a democracy where it's supposed to be through voting and stuff. They lived in a time where they had kings in charge. And the way John the Baptist's freedoms gets taken from him is through some silly naggy woman who just wants him out of the picture and some cowardly guy who doesn't know how to do it he says my solution is I'll just put him in prison our freedoms can be taken at any moment we see it all the time throughout scripture four of the epistles written in the new testament 27 books four of the letters are written from prison Revelation, John is kind of out as an outcast. It's, it's not a popular religion. It's not written by the governors and the presidents and the kings of the world necessarily. It's written by them, but also by prisoners. They can take our freedoms whenever they choose. But I'm an American. Okay, go vote. And if 51% of the people disagree with you, you're toast. Recent polls seem to say this about Christianity. Evangelical Christianity is kind of doing what it's always done. It's steadily inclining. All the people who used to claim to be Christians just because it was the cultural thing to do have now decided Christians seem to be bigoted and 
homophobic and a lot of things. So I'm going to jump ship and I'm just going to claim to be agnostic or whatever the next box was that I can check. So Christians are not the majority, nor have they probably ever been. And now we've got this big, big population who used to vote with us because it was advantageous for them are now shifting and over here. So now this minority party over here is being run and ruled and in a democracy of people who don't necessarily hold to this same book. So what do we do? Do we fight? Do we William Wallace this place? You with me? Let me just give you a very practical example. If you're over 40, 50, God bless you for being here. We love you. You've probably not been invited to many gay weddings. Maybe a few is my guess. Or none for most of you. The kids in this room now live in this country where 37, I think, current states offer same-sex marriage ceremonies. Supreme Court's in the middle of deciding what they think on this. Pretty soon, it'll be everywhere. The kids in this room, when I ask that question 10 years from now, everyone will raise their hand. Of course, I've been invited to a same-sex wedding. I've been to prom in a limousine with same-sex couples. I have been around this my whole life. How do we live as Christians in that culture? Do we just get cynical and mad and jaded and cranky? And Facebook comment? <laughs> I'm serious. We think about it. What is the most glorifying thing we can do for God? And what's the most loving thing we can do for my neighbor? Who happens to be my best friend? Who happens to be gay? Who happens to be my mom? Who happens to be gay? Who happens to be a sibling? Who happens to be gay? How do I think through this? Here's the reality. You've got to think through it. But this reality still holds. There's no golden ticket that gets you out of God's scorn and people's rejection of you. You are hosed in a lot of different directions you choose to go. Say you, your conviction is you do not believe that a man and a man should be married. You hold to the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. It's wrong. Marriage is between man and woman. And you live in Indiana and someone asks you to make pizza for their wedding. And you say, I can't. It's against my convictions. What happens to you? People attack you. And now Christians may come online. You guys have heard this story. Yes, it happened very recently. Indiana couple owns a pizza place, asked to do a gay wedding. They refused. Everyone jumped on them. Everybody jumped on Indiana. They were going to remove the final four from there because they were so mad at Indiana. How dare you? You go to Canada. You got two women who are getting married who want rings made. They go to a jeweler who are devout Christians who believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, and yet they make the rings out of love, use their gifts to bless others. That couple goes, finds out later from a friend that this couple has these convictions that go against what they're doing. To heck with them. How do you win? If your convictions say, no, I won't give this to them, or if your conviction says that my love must overcome and I will enter into their lifestyle and love them and bless them, you can't win. Jesus said it here. Because the powers that be, Herod was drunk during this little party. Who knows how the leaders that are making the decisions are making the decisions? But the decisions are made and Christians are called to love and glorify God in everything. And oh, by the way, Jesus puts a huge comma, by the way, you're going to be rejected all the time. Say no to the wedding or say yes to the wedding. You could be rejected. 
So you could be as jerky as you want to be in rejecting gay marriage, or you could be as loving and gracious in entering into it, and you could be rejected because you camp out with Jesus in his word, in his way. Again, we're not going to fight. I'm not William Wallace looking for a following. I'm just telling you how it is and how it's going to be. This is the lifestyle we've decided to embrace when we say the repentance is the key issue in this world. People are going to reject it time and time and time again, no matter how loving and nuanced you may come about. This should be sobering. We're going to play in Century League Field. It's raining. They're loud. We stop and we think and we embrace the cost of discipleship. Last thing we see here with John, again, this is just crazy. Verse 21. So he's in prison because the woman's crazy. The guy's a coward. But an opportunity came. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So he throws a party. He gets drunk, of course. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So this teenage girl comes in and does a little perverted dance for these grown men. Okay? This is our leadership. And the king said to the girl, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Pervert. Verse 23. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? So she goes to the mother who hates John all along. What do I ask? I got his attention. The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry because he liked John. He liked his message. He was intrigued. He's a coward and he's drunk. He's got to go through with it. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oath. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head on a platter. Chops off his head and brings it on a platter and gives it to the girl. Who's in charge of this country right now? Yes, Obama's president. But all the various levels of authority we have in our life, who knows how they're coming to their decisions? It could be as whimsical and silly and confusing as this passage here. Jesus says that's how Christianity is. We're not here to overthrow governments. We're here to bring the gospel of repentance to people everywhere. Now here's the question. Non-Christian, is this worth it? Christian, is this worth it? Is this lifestyle of constant rejection worth it? Here's what I think a lot of people would say. Absolutely, and you ask them why, it'd be some form of, because I'm going to do this thing, because I'm going to be courageous, because I'm going to battle hard, and I'm going to win this nation. I'm going to be like John the Baptist in my courage and my conviction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that we have the strength or the courage to be like John the Baptist in all instances, because we will fail time and time again. We will fail in our families. We will fail with the people we serve faithful. We will fail with our authorities. We'll be cynical and rude and not be what we need to be for everyone we're supposed to be it to. I promise you, you will fail. I'm at the top of the list. I have failed my family so many times as I bring Christianity into my home and into my extended family. I have failed. It's not on us to put our hands in the air and say, we can do this. We've got the courage. This picture is pointing forward to the man who had the courage. Jesus Christ, that's it. We don't look at John the Baptist for the source of our strength. We look at the substitute of our courage. We had no courage, and Jesus was our courage on the cross. Amen? Amen. 
That's what we look to. Then it's worth it. Then it's worth it. Just two closing remarks. Once you get the gospel right, you know it's not about your courage, it's about Jesus' courage. Still, what do we gain from all this? Running around telling people about Jesus being rejected and spit on and laughed at and mocked. Two things. People will get to know Jesus through your life. It will happen. Maybe not all the time. You may be batting a buck 60, one out of every 10, but people will come to know Jesus. Apostle Paul said it like this. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I, I will endure anything this world and the people in this world bring on me for the sake of the elect, for the people who don't know Jesus yet but will know him because of my life. People will get to know Jesus because of you. I like to daydream about baptism. I know, nerdy and pastor thing to do. I daydream about my oldest son getting baptized. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I will go through anything for Elijah to watch him up here. Abdi Akim, one of my dear Muslim friends. I endure all things for the sake of the elect to watch him come up here and recant his entire upbringing for the sake of the gospel. My best friend growing up, Preston Weakland, I endure all things for the sake of the elect to watch him come up here and get baptized. And then him and I go share a beer for the first time he can have a beer as a worshiper of Jesus and not as a drunken fool. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. That's why we do this. It is worth it. And in the process, you also get one special blessing that's kind of hidden in this. You get to know God on an unbelievable level. This is where the ministry starts. Jesus has been doing all the work. This section, now he gives the ministry over to his apostles, says, you go now do this. And it ends kind of at the end of chapter 8. And Jesus has a little power and he's sitting around. And he says, all right, guys, who are people saying that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say this guy. Who do you say I am? And Peter, for the first time, gets it right and says, you're the Christ. You are God. You're the Messiah. You are Lord. How did he get that? Because he went through suffering and he brought the gospel to people who rejected him. And his view of God got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Is it worth it? Absolutely. You know God more and people will come to know God through your life. Redemption Gateway, this is our call. Nothing more, nothing less. We're the visiting team, though. And that's a fact. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the reality of the Christian life. You don't try to make it more or less than it is. It comes with amazing promises of eternal life, relationship with you, forgiveness of sins, and it comes with the sobering reality that the people that grew up in our very homes could reject us. And yet it's all worth it for the sake of knowing you and watching others come to know you. God, as our culture changes, as the tide shifts, as people start to be not so much governed by the Bible and governed by their own lusts and thoughts, let us be a people who lovingly go out and face rejection. Lord, we love you. We need your grace to do this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.